0: This I is America Hang on Par, a powerful punch of political punditry in a pithy podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Parr. Thanks for listening. Uh, this weekend, I attended the Life March in downtown Shreveport and Bossier City, Louisiana. There are about a thousand people there, which is Pretty good, since it was literally freezing when the march began, and I know that's not as cold as it was up in the Northeast this weekend, but for Southern folks, it's pretty darn cold. (laughs) I wasn't a leader of the event. I didn't speak at it. I wasn't there to stand out. I was just part of the crowd. I was just a citizen demonstrating my opposition to abortion. Because this week is the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court ruling that legalized abortion in all 50 states. Now, early in my reporting career, I got to interview Norma McCorvey, the plaintiff in Roe v. Wade. She was the woman who sued to have an abortion. She won the case after her child was born and put up for adoption. See, the woman who got abortion legalized never actually had an abortion. She also now opposes abortion. That interview with her stunned me, and it certainly shaped how I view the entire debate. So that's why I was out there Saturday morning walking across the Texas Street Bridge in the freezing air with so many others who believe that the law of the land needs to be changed. But in order for that to happen, the way we try to convince people that the law needs to change needs to change as well. Let me explain why. Nancy Pelosi wrote an op-ed this week with the head of Planned Parenthood, Cecile Richards, for CNN. They framed the argument as Republicans oppose, quote, safe legal abortions. Notice how the language they use is disingenuous. If you are a fetus, there's no such thing as a safe abortion. But the language doesn't really get challenged. Democrats have successfully framed this argument as women's rights against bigoted religious zealots. You and I, in this case, are the bigoted religious zealots. This weekend at the Life March, I did hear a lot of religion. There were hallelujahs and amens from all the speakers. There were references to Bible passages that were on point, but I'm I'm not sure what was said would have changed the mind of anyone on the other side of the issue. I want to be clear, I'm not criticizing anything said or done by the Life March organizers. Yes, they were preaching to the choir, but sometimes the choir needs to be preached to. The choir, especially when it's facing opposition, needs to be bolstered and supported so that its voice can be heard. That's part of what the Life March was about, to show those members of the choir they are not alone in their principled opposition. But I'm not convinced the same messages we use to support the choir will convince anyone on the opposition or even on the fence. I think of it this way. Back in the early days of the church, when you really could be killed by the Roman Empire for even talking about Jesus or Christianity, members of the church would have to meet secretly. When one person met another they thought might share their faith, they would draw an arc, a little part of a circle, just a little arc in the dirt. And if the other person was a Christian, he would draw an ark as well, and it would make the image of a fish in the sand, an ichthus, Greek for fish. If you've seen those fish on bumper stickers uh, around town, you wonder what that's about. That, that's what it's about. They're, they're saying they're Christian, and you can talk about faith with them. Well, well, that's what I think a lot of us are doing in the abortion debate today. We are arguing from a Christian perspective. We're saying things like Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. And that makes sense to a lot of Christians and people of faith who regularly read the Bible. But to those on the other side, those who have been told we're a bunch of religious zealots, we might as well be drawing an ark in the sand. It makes no sense to them. They don't understand what we're doing. Our message, which makes perfect sense to us, doesn't even dent their consciousness. Let's go back to Nancy Pelosi. She's a Catholic. We should be able to say to her, Jeremiah 1.5, or how about this, Matthew 25.40, Inasmuch as you have done unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me, and that should be the end of the argument. Case closed. I knew you before you were born, and whatever you do for the weakest and most vulnerable, you do that for me. Got it. But no, she doesn't see that. She doesn't hear that. And people who follow her and support her won't be convinced by those words. The choir will appreciate it. Others were just drawing lines in the sand. So what do we do? How do we convince people that abortion is wrong without using faith as the backbone of our argument? Faith can be your backbone, but if, if it's the only foundation of your argument, you're not going to convince people who don't have that same faith as their backbone. Well, Norma McCorvey might be a good guide here. You see, her transformation from the plaintiff in Roe v. Wade to anti-abortion activist didn't take place in a church. It took place In a doctor's office. She was looking at a chart of fetal development, pictures of gestational stages, and she realized that what she was looking at wasn't simply a collection of cells. It was a baby. That's the whole point here. It wasn't faith that converted her. Yes, she became a Catholic, but that was many years later. She was transformed by science and logic. I believe that's where the pro-life movement will gain most of its converts not in the pews, but in the public square. So here's how I approach this from a scientific and medical standpoint when I'm talking to people who are pro-choice. To figure out when a fetus becomes a person, a human being that is protected by the rights guaranteed in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, let's start at the other end. To figure out when you're alive, let's look at when you're dead. According to the law, the Uniform Determination of Death Act, death occurs when an individual has sustained, quote, irreversible cessation of circulatory and respiratory functions or irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain. Okay, no heartbeat, no brain activity, you're dead. D-E-D, dead. All right, if that's when you're dead... Then when you have a heartbeat and you have a brain activity, you are by definition alive. See how simple that is? Heartbeat, brain waves, you're alive. And if you have human DNA and you have a heartbeat and brain waves, you are then, by definition, part of mankind. And our Declaration of Independence says all men are created equal and have unalienable rights to life. The Constitution says. You can't be denied your life without due process. So if you have human DNA and a heartbeat and brain activity, then you are a living human being subject to the protections of our laws, which guarantee your life cannot be taken without due process in a court of law. So the only question that remains is, when does a fetus gain a heartbeat and brain activity? By the fifth week. That's right, by the start of the second month after conception, you are a living human being by legal definition. 65% of all abortions take place after the baby has a heartbeat and brain activity, two-thirds. This, by the way, is why I don't believe there should be allowances for abortions during cases of rape or incest abortion takes away the life of a human being without due process the infant didn't commit the crime so she shouldn't bear the punishment indeed our constitution says so even in the case of a risk to the mother's health i'm not convinced that abortion is needed the stats on this are extremely rare the best estimate i've seen is less than one percent and even that may be overstating reality look Babies are surviving at younger and younger ages. How many of you know a child who survived being born at 22 weeks or younger? I personally know of three, and that's just in my circle of friends and family. When my wife was pregnant with our second child, her liver started shutting down. Toxins started building up. If we didn't do something quick, my wife would have been in serious danger of organ failure. So we didn't abort my daughter. Instead, we induced labor. We didn't end her life because of the risk to my wife. We started my daughter's life a little early. More and more, the argument of abortion to save the life of a mother is a false choice. It's intellectually dishonest. It's not an either-or. I know most Christians believe that life begins at conception. I'm not sure I can make that argument solidly outside of my faith. I I can make it within faith very easily. But I don't want to have to first convert people to Christianity before I make them understand just how evil abortion actually is. That's not how it worked for Norma McCorvey. It was the other way around. Once she realized she was wrong on abortion, she was then brought into her faith. I ran across a great quote from a Nobel Prize-winning physicist, Sir William Bragg. He said, sometimes people ask if religion and science are not opposed to one another. They are, in the sense that the thumb and the fingers of my hands are opposed to one another. It's an opposition by means of which anything can be grasped. I love that. There is a time for preaching to the choir. And there is a time for using science to help others grasp the truth. Thanks for listening. If you like these podcasts, please share them with your friends on Facebook and Twitter. If you'd like to leave a comment, you can always do so on my website, AmericaonPar.com. I'm Stephen Parr, and I can still see old glory. Flying over me in the first light of the morning I can see the it.